Anybody need one? There's one right over here. Welcome back, Josh. Good to have you back. To God's country? No. <laughs> he was in Oregon for a while. <laughs> Mourning the loss of the ducks. Did you guys pull for the Oregon ducks, your Taylor ducks? Did you pull for the Oregon ducks? You should have. All right. Thank you. All right. Today we're going to talk about the birth and the progress of the church. I want to begin by reading the scripture to you uh, from 1 Chronicles. I want you to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter uh, 12, I believe. Actually, I think it's chapter 32. No, it's chapter 12, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32 is what I'm looking for. 1 Chronicles 12, 32. An interesting little scripture. First Chronicles 12.32 says, Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. Of the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. And God recorded concerning this tribe... Not just their number, but he said something interesting about this tribe. He said that they were, they were men who understood the times that they lived in. And they knew what Israel ought to do. And I thought of this scripture today um, as I prepared this message Because I wonder, do we as the church, do we understand the times that we're living in? Do we understand the things that are transpiring and taking place around us? Are you connecting the dots in terms of what is or is not happening in the church and how that relates to what is and what is not happening in our culture. You know, it's, it's all related. Jesus said that we are the church. His people are to be salt and light in this world. And that tells us right there that we are to have an impact. We are to have an effect in the world that God has placed us in. We're not of the world, but we're in the world. And we're in the world for a reason. And Jesus said we're to be salt and we're to be light. We're to preserve and we're to illuminate. And so, do you, church, do you, church, understand the times that you're living in? Do you know what the church ought to be doing. Do you know what we should be doing today? This is an important question. So when we talk about the birth and the progress of the church, let's go, let's go to the very first place in Scripture that the word church is used. It's Matthew 16, 18. Father, as we get ready to look into your word today, Father, we ask that you would by your spirit, Lord, open our hearts and open our minds. God, we would 
Lord, as Brother Ron said this morning, Lord, see the Word of God, understand the Word of God as something delicious. Lord, this isn't the Word of a man, this is not a Word that will come and go and pass away. This is the divine Word of God. And we ask you today, Lord, to give us a taste for your word, to give us a hunger for your word, to give us a thirsting for your word, that we too could be men and women who understand the times that we live in and know what we ought to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 16, verse 18. This is the very first time the word church is used in all of Scripture. And guess who used the word first? Jesus did, that's right. Matthew 16, 18, let me read it to you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the first time the word church was used in Scripture, it's used to communicate the promise Christ makes that he will build his church in the gates of hell. Actually, that word is not hell. I know your King James translates it hell, but it's actually the Greek word Hades. In the Bible, the word hell, it's kind of an interesting, it it, it can mean the same thing, but it is an interesting distinction. So he makes this promise that he will build the church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That word Hades is a Greek word that means unseen. That's what it means, unseen. Now in Greek, uh, how many of you took Greek mythology when you were in school? Greek mythology was the, that was the place of the, okay, not too many people took Greek mythology. Who saw Clash of the Titans, the modern day version? See, a lot more people. Well, there you got some Greek mythology there. You might not have known it, but that, that was a lesson in and of itself of Greek mythology. And remember that guy that... Um, that dark character, you know, who released the Kraken, you know, that, that guy. That was, uh, that was the Lord of Hades, you know, not a real pleasant dude. But this is where he lived, Hades. And so Hades literally means, all frivolity aside, it means unseen. It was the unseen realm. Now what's interesting is this. Look what Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of the unseen realm shall not prevail against it. There's another interesting word in this verse and it's the word gates. Now we don't really think much about gates today. You probably have a gate that goes into your yard. Maybe your backyard has a gate where your dogs are and you know when the other day I my gate was left open and my dogs got out. And Are my neighbors here today? They were here last weekend. <laughs> and my dog almost killed their dog. My dogs almost killed their poor dog. Uh, we're fine. We're, you know, we're, we're in good shape and the dog is alive and everything. But gates are important, right? You know, some gates are meant to be open. Some gates are meant to be closed. And, uh, and so Jesus uses this word gates here. Now, in ancient times, what's interesting about gates... Gates were very, very important. Gates were 
the most important part of a city because the gate was the way in and the way out. And if you didn't have a strong gate, your wall could be as strong and as tall as you want. But if your gate's not very strong, then you don't have much defense for your city. And so gates were very important, not only in terms of protecting a city, keeping things out, as well as keeping things in, I guess, you know. Gates were also the place where council took place. If you read in the Old Testament, you'll often see that the elders sat at the gate of the city. And they would sit at the main gate of the city, and this is where they would hold court. This is where people would come to receive wisdom from the elders. This is the place where they would come and, and, and they, would, they would execute justice and judgment in these things. And they would, they would create counsel and strategy. So Jesus is communicating quite a lot here in this little bitty statement about the church. First of all, we need to understand that this is a promise that Jesus is making to the church. And the promise is that he will build his church. Now, I want you to notice something there, church. It's very, very important. In this verse, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Nowhere does it say that we will build, that we will cause anything to happen. He's going to build it. He's going to cause us to prevail. We don't have the strength within ourselves to prevail over anything, much less the gates of Hades. Amen? That should give a lot of you some relief because a lot of people spend a whole lot of time and a whole lot of energy trying to overcome something that they were never meant to overcome. What we're supposed to do is put our faith in the one who has already overcome. Put our faith in the one who has made this promise that he will build and he will prevail. He has. Amen? He has done it. And so, Jesus not only says the gates of hell aren't strong enough to prevail against the church, but he's also saying this, the counsel and the strategy of the unseen forces that work against us they will not prevail against us. Whatever scheme, whatever plan, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, whatever temptation that the enemy can dream up for your life, God says, those things will not prevail against you. How can you be so certain of that, you might say, Pastor Jeff? Because Jesus declared it. And I'm not trusting in what I feel or how strong or how weak I might be, I am trusting in Him. He made the promise. He will build the church. The gates of hell, the counsel of the enemy, the strength of the enemy will not prevail against it. It won't do it, church. Now, you missed an opportunity right there. Man, you should have shouted right there. I mean, some of you should have just shouted right there because you're, you're just... Can I just say it? The words in the Bible, you're just going through hell. And you're under the yoke of the enemy, and God has promised you something. 
And you know what? As long as you keep trying to lift that thing and carry that thing and deal with that thing yourself, you know what? God will let you do it. He will. And that's not a mean thing. That's really actually quite a loving and graceful thing of Him. Because when you finally expend every last bit of energy and effort you have and you can't do it any longer and you are there laying in a broken heap with nothing left, you know who's going to come pick you up? Christ is. I'm speaking figuratively. Because sometimes we have to reach that point to understand that He is the one. We're we're not meant to lift this heavy load. He does the heavy lifting. He is the captain of the host. He's already bought our victory. So as we walk, and this is why Paul says, these light afflictions, that's why he says, these things that are working in me a more eternal weight of glory. How can Paul say that? Because Paul understood the promise of Jesus. That Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell, the council of hell, will not prevail against us. Amen? So the church has a promise to prevail. And this promise provides the assurance of victory. Not victory that will be won, but victory that has already been won. We walk in confidence not because of what Christ will do, but because of what Christ has already done. Amen? The next time the word church is used is just a couple of chapters over. It's Matthew chapter 18. Jesus again utters the word. This is an interesting section of Scripture. There's kind of progression here. Now, in Matthew 16, Jesus has given to His disciples the revelation of the church. First time the word's been used. First time it's recorded in the Bible. And Jesus says something to them that's never been said before. He he, he brings to them a revelation of something that, that they haven't thought about before, that, that they really don't even understand. I mean, when Jesus says that to Peter, Peter doesn't really even understand at that time what's fixing to take place. And we see that as we follow the course of the Gospels all the way into uh, the book of Acts, we see that Peter really didn't get it until after the resurrection of Jesus, until after the Holy Spirit came to live on the inside of Peter, and, 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 and he received this revelation, and he began to understand what Jesus had declared to him. And so the, the moral of that story is, you might say, I don't get it, Pastor Jeff, I just don't understand. It's okay. It's okay if you don't understand. Just don't give up because you don't understand. Don't quit seeking because you don't understand. Don't stop knocking because you don't understand. Don't stop asking because you don't understand. You're in good company. The disciples of Jesus himself did not understand. But praise God because Jesus made a promise that he would build his church and the gates and the council of hell would not prevail against it. You know what? They came to understand. They came to comprehend. How do we know? Because they left us a record of it right here called the Bible, called the New Testament. Praise God. And so here in Matthew chapter 18, we follow this progression in in, in Jesus' You know, he, he gives them the revelation of the church. He takes three of them up on the mountain, and he's transfigured before them, and they're all excited, and they're ready to build all kinds of idols and altars, and Jesus rebukes them, and they come back down, and they cast a, Jesus casts a demon out of a little boy, and, and then they begin to ask him questions. Man, you know, Jesus, uh, uh, we're just wondering about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and can I sit at your right, or can I sit at your left, and... And what's my position going to be? And Jesus begins to teach them. 
Jesus taught a lot. And he began to teach them that they had the wrong attitude. And he goes all the way down, and let's, let's, begin, in verse, um, let's begin in verse 15. He goes all the way down, he tells them, he said, you guys need to become like this little child right here. Unless you become like this little child, um, unless you understand these things as a little child, you're not going to get it. It's not about what position you're going to be exalted to. Verse 15, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you and you've gained your brother, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take this, take with you one or two more. Say, that's, I'm sorry, let me start over. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Verse 17, And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. That word church literally means the called out assembly. The called out, the assembly of called out ones is literally what this word ecclesia means. It is the assembly of called out ones. That's why I say this building isn't the church. You are the church. You are the assembly of called out ones. You have been called out of death and sin and called into the kingdom of the Son. Amen? Who called you? Jesus called you. Who translated you from darkness to light? Jesus translated you from darkness to light. So he says, go and, 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 and tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector. Now, two interesting words here, the word heathen and the word tax collector. That word heathen is simply the Greek word for Gentile. Now, remember, Jesus is talking to Jews here, right? And he says, if they won't hear, let them be to you as a Gentile, as one of the nations, as one that you have been called out separate from. And so we see a principle here. Jesus is talking about the church, and Jesus is drawing a distinction between the church and what? The world. Now, he didn't say hate the world. We hate the world system. He didn't say hate people, but he said there is a distinction between you and them. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. They're in the world, and they are also of the world. And so, what is the principle that Jesus is talking about here? Why is this important in terms of the progress of the church? Because what Jesus is referring to here is the church, he's giving the church a command to do what? To discipline. And we don't like that word discipline because it has a negative connotation, but it shouldn't have a negative connotation. Parents, is it negative for you to discipline your children? I'm not talking about taking a stick after them and just whooping the tar out of them. I'm talking about providing guidance to them. I mean, you know, you might have to swat them. Maybe you need, do need to do that. But, but I'm talking about, are you providing guidance for your children? Do they know 
what they should and shouldn't do. You know, remember, should they play in the road? Should they not play in the road? Well, you're not being mean to your kids if you don't let them play in the road. You're disciplining them. You're, you're teaching them there's a boundary. In my, when I grew up, my mom said the boundary is the backyard. I couldn't say backyard when I was a little kid, so I called it the back of wad. Well, I couldn't go outside the back of wad until I got a certain age. That was my boundary. Not because my mom was mean, but because she didn't want me wandering off into the street there. So discipline's a good thing. So Jesus gives us a command to discipline for what? This command provides what? It, commands a me- it provides a mechanism for unity. So if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. Go to him alone, Jesus said, and if he hears you, guess what? You've regained your brother. Boom, there's restoration and there's unity. Jesus wants restoration and unity. Why? Because if the church is going to progress, there needs to be unity. The council of hell is not unity, it is disunity, it's division. And so Jesus gives this command to give us a mechanism for unity in the body of Christ. We just don't like to use this mechanism because it, it, it seems harsh, and it seems harsh because we don't understand what discipline is, what the, the true value of these things. Amen? And so this command provides this mechanism for unity. So he's talking about a brother. So let me just ask you this. Is it mean of Jesus to say, let him be like a heathen? See, the Jews understood that statement. In other words, you're separate from him. Was that a mean or an unfair thing? Who made the decision to be separate? Not the church, the guy who committed the sin to begin with. He would not come into unity. Go to him alone. Take two with you. If two, you won't hear two, take him to the church. If you won't hear the church, then what? We have no choice. It's not a mean thing. It's just a reality thing. And so... The, the beauty of what Jesus is saying, and we've kind of lost this today, and the reason we've lost it today is because the church has grown more and more fragmented instead of working together. <coughs> and so you understand that, for instance, in the New Testament, when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, there was a church in Ephesus. Now, there might have been a lot of different groups that met, you know, in Jerusalem, they met house to house. But there weren't many churches in Jerusalem. There was one church in Jerusalem. They might have met in different places, but they didn't see themselves, they didn't identify themselves as many different churches. They understood that there was one church, that's the body of Christ. And so this thing works when the body is connected and working the way it's supposed to. It doesn't work when it's not, because... If you are, for instance, if you are a child uh, that comes from a broken home, or if you're a child, uh, if, you're, if you're living in a home, if you have a mom and dad living in a home together, and that mom and dad are estranged, though they may be in the same house, or let's say it's a situation of a divorce, and we've probably all seen this, um, how children will play one parent against the other. Now, that doesn't mean the children are, you know, I mean, that's just, that, that just comes real natural. That's part of our fallen nature, right? And so you'll have 
children playing one parent against the other. If I don't get my way with mom, then I'm going to go over here and talk to dad. And if dad says I can do it, then I'm, I'm going to do it. This is kind of what we have going on in the church. You know, if member A doesn't like what pastor, you know, at one church says, well, I'll just go to another church over here and see if I can get my way over here. And there's, there's no accountability. That's not the way Jesus set the church up to be. And so this mechanism that Jesus put in place is not to harm people. It's not to damage people. It's actually to provide a mechanism for unity in the body so that the church can continue to be a witness to the world. Amen? So that the world doesn't look at the church and say, boy, that is a bunch of dysfunctional people called the church. See, the world should never look at the church and say the church is dysfunctional. But that's what happens because we don't, we don't rightly divide the word of truth and we're afraid of the word of God and we're afraid to obey the word of God because we fear men more than we fear God. We're more worried about pleasing people than we are doing what Jesus commands in his word. And it ought not to be that way. So my prayer for you, church, is that you would develop a love, a love for the truth. And that love for the truth would transcend and supersede any and everything. Amen? I was talking to someone last week, and I told them, I said, you know, uh, we don't serve God out of fear. This person was struggling with the reality that the, the Scripture says we're to fear God. It's like, if God is love, why should we fear Him? And, and it's like, well, we should fear Him and we shouldn't fear Him. The, the Scripture says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how many wise fools have you guys ever met? Anybody know any wise fools? No? No? Can there be a wise fool? It's impossible. There, that's a mutually exclusive uh, statement right there. A fool can't be wise by the very nature of who he is. Just like God can't lie because he is the truth. <laughs> a fool can't be wise. So the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's the Bible? How does the Bible define a fool? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's a fool. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When I recognize my need of God and my need of a Savior, and I understand who He is, the fear of the Lord, I need a Savior, and if God doesn't save me, I'm, I'm doomed. That should cause us to fear. Now, if I don't know I'm doomed, then I'm not fearing, right? But when I understand I'm doomed, and the only one that can save me from my doom is God... I am fearful that He will not save me. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because that is my acknowledgement of the God, the only God who can save me. It's the beginning of wisdom. Not the end of it, the beginning of it. God gives wisdom and understanding. And so, in that sense, yes. But then John later on says in his first epistle, in John 14, 16, and this love has been perfected. That in the day of judgment, we have boldness and confidence because as He is, so are we now. And we know fear involves torment, but perfect love casts out all fear. Now, how could God want us to fear Him, but yet He says we shouldn't fear Him? Well, they're both true. If I'm a fool, I better fear Him. But as a child of God, I need to understand His complete love for me. And that complete love will 
cast away any fear that I have. He's not against me. He's for me. And if God be for us, church, then who can be against us? Amen? If I'm against God, that's a scary thing. And when I'm a fool and I say in my heart there is no God, I I have just set myself against God. Now, that is a fearful thing. And I better know it's fearful, and I I better embrace that fear, and I better cry out to the only one who can save me. That's the beginning of wisdom. And so, these things, this reality of the church, the called out assembly, those whom God has called out, The next verse, let's go to Acts chapter 2. The next verse, now that's the last time Jesus, until we get to the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, and Jesus dictated a letter to John to each of the seven churches. But that is the last time we see Jesus use the word church in the Gospels. And now we come to the book of Acts. And the church... Jesus spoke of in Matthew 16 was the church that we see birthed here in the book of Acts with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now that's that's a real... That's a real good section of Scripture if you start up there in verse 42 and read all the way down to the end of the chapter, but we're not going to. And we see that the result of the Lord adding to the church daily is the result of of what's recorded in those previous verses. And you see a lifestyle of the church there recorded in the book of Acts. And we see that what God did, and, and Luke is the writer of Acts, and Luke is giving us a record of what God did. And what did God do? He added to the church daily those who were being saved. So the church has a promise to prevail. It has a command to to discipline, to unity, and it has a record of increase. So this record provides assurance that God will add to the church those who are being saved. Now what's interesting about this word added to It's a Greek word that means to annex. Some of you are real familiar with annexation because some of you who lived out in the country in Williamson County and never thought you'd be a part of the city of Taylor, guess what? Now you have been annexed by the city of Taylor. And for those hundreds of dollars a year that they're going to charge you, they're going to let you have a library card. Oh, no, wait, you don't even get a library card yet. (laughs) I love the city of Taylor, I really do. They're just in a tight spot right now, and they're going to need some time to work these things out. But, but that's what this word means, added to. It means to annex, which I think is kind of an interesting picture. It's an interesting word picture because Jesus said, I will build my church. And, and you know how he's going to build his church? He's going to start annexing. And, and, and his church isn't going to be a little thing. I mean, his church is going to become so big that the knowledge of the glory of God is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He's going to have to annex a whole lot of stuff. Matter of fact, he's going to annex everything because he owns everything. Amen? But this is what this word means. It means to annex. And so the church has a foundational promise that Christ will build. 
and Christ will prevail. It has a command, a loving command to restore and to discipline to unity. And it has an accurate record. Do you know it is said that Luke is one of the greatest historians in the history of mankind. The man who is often called the greatest archaeology of, of, uh, of all times, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey, back in the 1800s, set out to prove that the book of Acts was written somewhere around 150 A.D. because they didn't believe that it was really an inspired document. I mean, we're almost, you know, here we are uh, 1,800 years on the other side, and they're still arguing, saying, well, Acts really isn't an inspired document because what Luke recorded in there, they, they couldn't find evidence of it. And so instead of just trusting God, they said, well, it's not true. So this guy, this great archaeologist, he, he, leaves, he leaves the British Isles and he goes over to the Middle East and he's going to prove that the book of Acts is not an inspired book and it was written way after the fact. You know what he found out? He found out through his archaeological studies, digging around in the dirt over there in the Middle East, that everything Dr. Luke said was correct. And not only was everything correct, this man today, known as the greatest archaeology, archaeologist, declared that, that Luke was, without a doubt, one of the greatest historians that humankind has ever witnessed because of the accuracy of the things that he wrote. And so we, hear, and we have here an accurate record of God saving and adding to. Why is that important for us, church? Why is that important for us to have? Why did God leave us this record? You know, that's what the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, it's, it's really it's a record of their acts. It's a record of the things that they did as the early... Why would God leave that for us? He left that for us so that we would understand what God has begun, He will complete. This is how He started it, and that's how He's going to finish it. He's not going to finish it any different than the way He started it. He he did this, He started this, He's going to finish it. You think God's someone who starts something and doesn't finish it? He's not. Come to my house and you'll see that on my front porch, I tore out my front porch, jacked it up, poured semen under it, got it all level because it had sunk. I had to tear all the rocks off around it. And I still have a pile of rocks there that I have not put back on. You know, mortar, I've got to put those. How many years has it been, honey? I'm confessing my sins to you, church. That's not who God is. I'm telling you what, what God starts, God finishes. God doesn't have a bunch of honeydews unfinished all over the universe, all over planet Earth. Uh uh-uh. uh. What God starts, He's going to finish. What God started in you, He's promised to finish in you. When God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, God meant exactly what He said. And so we see that God started this. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Now, I'm not going to finish this today. I'm not even going to try to finish it today. We're going to continue next week, so don't get freaked out because I only have 15 minutes left and I still have all of this material. The Holy Spirit in the birth of the church. 
Acts chapter 1. Let's just start in verse 4. You see that the first three verses, Luke is, is declaring that he's written this. This is an account. It continues. It goes with the gospel of Luke. Luke and the book of Acts go together. This is the continuing account of the things that Jesus has done and the acts of the apostles. In verse 4, it begins, "...in being assembled together with them, that's Jesus with his disciples, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me." We can go back to John uh, 14, 15, and 16, and you'll see that's what, that's what that refers to. Jesus, in, in the hours before his arrest, before his crucifixion, he taught his disciples about the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus is referring to here. He says, "...which you've heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. But you shall receive power." I'm skipping down to verse 8. "...but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth." So we see that the promise of the Father is a very specific thing. He refers to it again, I believe, in Acts 2.39, when Peter is preaching to uh, the men of Jerusalem there that are gathered there. The promise of the Father is not an event, but it's a person. It is the Holy Spirit. This is the promise of the Father. This is the promise that Jesus referred to in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 11.13. How much more, if you ask your Father in heaven, will He give you the Holy Spirit? Amen? The promise of the Father is not an event, it's a person. What kind of person is God? What's God's lifespan? It's eternal. See, events, events come and go, but the person of God doesn't come and go. He is eternal. The promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, is not an event that happens and leaves and it's over with. It is a person who eternally abides in you. Amen? Well, you should have shouted right there too, because that's, that's something. We can't even comprehend that thing. That's so big, we don't even... I mean, that just like blows our circuits. We don't even want to try to figure that one out. The Holy Spirit signifies and seals our salvation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20, let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing, verse 20, For all the promises of God in Him are yes, and in Him, amen. They are yes, and so be it. I like that. To the glory of God through us. Do you see that, church? The promises of God are yes, and so be it. To what end? to the glory of God. Where? Through us. God has made these promises for for His glory. Those promises in Christ were made for the glory of God, and that glory of God will be realized where? Through us, the Bible says. He who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us. Who has an, and He who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. How did He anoint us? He gave us the Holy Spirit. You know what the anointing is? It's not some mystical thing. Go to 1 John. 
<laughs> the anointing is the Holy Spirit. That's, the anoint- that's what God anointed us with. If you're a believer, you're anointed this morning. And if you're a believer, you got the same anointing Paul had and Jesus had. Now, I didn't say you had the same gift. I didn't say you have it in the same measure. But you have the very same spirit that Paul had. And you know what spirit Paul had? The very same spirit. You know how I know? Because he records it in Romans 8.11. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that dwells in you and will strengthen your mortal body. That's the anointing you have, church. That's the anointing you have if you are in Christ this morning. That's the promise you have. And it's a sure promise. How do we know? Because the scripture says, all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him so be it to the glory of God. Who has also, verse 22, sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? A guarantee of all his promises. A guarantee that I'm his child. A guarantee that that I am saved, not by what I did, but by what he did. Amen? So the Holy Spirit's, the seal, it signifies the seal of our salvation in Christ. The Holy Spirit's not a substance we were baptized with, but the person baptizing us fully into Christ. Are you partway in Christ? Are you partway out of Christ? You got one foot in Christ and one foot out of Christ? Impossible. You're either in Him or you're not. Are you you partly alive and partly dead? No. You're either alive or you're dead. Now, we can debate the quality of your life, but you're either alive or you're dead. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is the person that immersed me fully, put me into Christ. Amen? Let's go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Now, here in John chapter 16, Jesus is explaining, He's teaching His disciples the importance of Him going away so that He can send the Helper. Let's begin in verse 7, John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Boy, when Jesus says that, you know, he is, when he puts that kind of emphasis on a statement, we need to pay attention. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine those disciples who now have, have been intimately involved with the life of Jesus for at least three and a half years? And he's trying to convince them that it's to their advantage that he go away. You know they didn't buy it. And you probably wouldn't either. Oh, it's easy for us, 2,000 years on the other side, looking back and going, man, those guys just didn't have any faith. How come they didn't believe Jesus? Well, you put yourself in their situation. And here is your Messiah telling you, I know you don't believe me, but it's really to your advantage that I go away. I'm going to send this invisible person you call the Holy Spirit. Uh, let's see, Jesus, uh, we have you that we can put our hands on and talk to face-to-face or an invisible helper. Yeah, right. They didn't believe him. But Jesus was telling them the truth. 
He says, I'm telling you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, it doesn't say he will come to you. It says, I will send him to you. I think that's kind of an important distinction. We, we need to see that the Spirit of God is our helper. He's not just our helper. He's also the helper of Christ. He is now going to come and continue the work that Christ began in the earth. He's not going to just continue it in the earth, but he is now going to work in us and through us. To what end? He works in us, helping us as he manifests the life of Christ in us. This is why Jesus said it's so important that I go and I send him to you because if he's not living in you, you cannot manifest. You can't have my life and you can't make my life known. So the Spirit of God is not something we possess. Listen to me, church. The Spirit of God is not something we possess. The Spirit of God is something that possesses us. The Spirit of God is not some force or some gift that I have now in my possession to be used. No, He is a person that has come to possess me. He signifies that I am owned lock, stock, and barrel by Christ. I was bought and paid for. It, the, the deal is sealed. And God knows it's sealed. And God knows it's a done deal because the Spirit of God is living in me. And living in you if you are born again this morning. So it's not something we possess, but it's someone who possesses us. The Spirit of God is not something under our control, but something who is to be in control over us. This is what the phrase filled with the Spirit means. To be filled with the Spirit is to live under the control of the Spirit. If the Spirit's living in you, church, why are you not living under the control of the Spirit? Why are you letting fear fill you, or anger fill you, or greed fill you, or lust fill you? Be filled by the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. God wouldn't have given you His Spirit if He didn't want you to be controlled by it. If He didn't want you to be surrendered and submitted to it. Amen? The Spirit of God didn't come to us until Jesus departed and sent Him to us. The Spirit does not obey us. The Spirit obeys Christ. God didn't give His Spirit to you so you could tell His Spirit what to do. You guys know that, right? The Spirit obeys Christ. That's why He testifies of Christ. He reveals the things of Christ. He makes known to you all the things that have been given to Christ. He is here to make Christ known in you and through you. Amen? So God has given us what? What's He given us, church? He's given us the promise to prevail. The word of Christ will never pass away. 
He will build his church. Why? Because he said he would. The gates of hell, the council of hell will not prevail. Why? Because he said it would not. Because he is our victory. He's given to us the command to maintain unity. The the command of Christ is given so that we would obey. Amen? The command of Christ is always to be obeyed. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm doing pretty good. I actually might finish this week. Ephesians 4, 1, let me read this. Read with me if you have your Bible. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Hallelujah. That's who we are, church. Do you see the picture that Christ has painted there, that the Holy Spirit has painted there in His Word. And the Scripture has given us a record that assures victory. A promise to prevail, a command to maintain, and a record that assures victory. How do we know? You think about this. I want you to think for a moment. When the book of Acts was written, the church had just begun to move out of Jerusalem. I mean, it it had reached into the Roman Empire. But in the book of Acts, we see in that beginning, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, there was a church in the city of Jerusalem And from that day until now, I want you to think about where the church has gone. And I want you to think about the record that God gave us and the promise that God gave us. How did we come to sit in this building today and discuss this scripture today and talk of the Holy Spirit that was poured out on that day? How did we come to do that? Because God made a promise and He will keep that promise. But he also gave a command to his church. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. God made a promise, but I'm telling you what. There were men who were taught and discipled who learned the Word of God, who passed this Word, who spent countless years, hear me church, years copying by hand these scriptures that we have today. Back then, they couldn't mass produce them. When I went to Ireland, I went to Trinity University, and I saw the book of Kells, one of the most amazing books you will ever see. And you realize that those books were written with a goose feather 
and ink that was made from crushed seashells or crushed uh, insects or crushed vegetation. And they would have to slaughter hundreds of calves just to get the, the parchment, the vellum, to be able to write those scriptures on. And you realize over the course of centuries, disciples have recorded this scripture. And the record of this scripture has proven to be reliable, so reliable that it is nothing less than supernatural. Our modern science and archaeology has proven that today. They just knew when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were going to finally prove the Bible was wrong. You know what? It did the exact opposite. It proved that it was even more reliable than we thought it was. God did that. But He did it through men who were submitted to His will, to His ways, to His Spirit. And here is my fear, church. We're living in a time, we're living in an era when the church is so caught up in things that are so not eternal. And we are so selfish and self-centered. We want to come in and have our itches scratched and our ears tickled. And I'm saying, where are the men who have a love for this Scripture? A hundred years from now, 500 years from now, if we're still here. I don't know how long we're going to be here. Jesus could come back tonight. But what if He doesn't? The early church didn't think we'd be here 2,000 years later still preaching and teaching the Scriptures. But thank God somebody got a hunger and a thirst and a commitment to the Word of God and they passed this Scripture down to us. Are we like the sons of Issachar? Do we understand the times that we live in? I know this isn't a fun message. I know you guys get tired of hearing this from me. Some of you do. But I'm going to tell you what. If we're not going to discern the times we live in, who's going to do it? If the church isn't going to do it, who will? If we're not going to love this Word, you think the world is? No. They're trying to destroy it. Where are the sons of Issachar today who understand the times they live in and they know what Israel ought to do? Where are the sons of God who understand the times they live in and know what the church is to do? Jesus told us, go and make disciples. How can you make a disciple if you don't become a disciple? How can you teach someone the Word of God if you don't know the Word of God? Now, I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip, church. I'm just telling you the truth. If the shoe fits, go ahead and wear it. If it doesn't fit, leave it under the bed. Okay? Or in the closet, wherever you keep your shoes. I don't know. By the front door, back door. I don't know. Do you love this word? How can you love Jesus and not love this word? They are one and the same. Church, fall in love with the Scripture. We are, we are the stewards that are passing this word down today to our children and our children's children. What are we passing down to them? What are we teaching them? Through our life, through our example, what are we teaching them? Will we know this scripture well enough to teach them what it says and to help them come to a comprehension of it that will carry them? Amen? Let's all stand.